Well, let me do my part to say Happy Mother's Day to you, moms. I'd like us to look at a passage of Scripture this morning that has some connections to moms, but it's applicable for all of us. It's in Luke 18. Turn to Luke 18. We're going to look at just three verses in Luke 18. But, but first, I want to think about the chapter as a whole. Luke 18 provides a series of snapshots of conversion or salvation, how we come to faith. Let me show you some of these. Even without reading the passages, I'll just show you. You look down in your Bibles and you'll see these stories that you're probably familiar with. Some of them real stories, some of them parables that Jesus taught us. The first snapshot of salvation is verses 9 to 14, and we saw it four weeks ago when we were back in Luke, and it's the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember, the Pharisee is self-righteous, and he commends his self-righteousness to God in his prayer, and he's not justified, but the tax collector, though a famous sinner, he merely beats on his chest and cries out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he has nothing to offer God. But Jesus says that man went home justified that day. The second picture of salvation is what we're going to look at today, verses 15 to 17. It's where Jesus welcomes children to come to him and says, this is what the kingdom is like. It's like children. The third picture is what we'll see, Lord willing, next week, verses 18 and following It's the rich young ruler. This is a reverse example. This is how not to come into the kingdom, how you can't come into the kingdom, because it's a man who commends his self-righteousness and loves his riches, and when that's tested, he chooses riches over Jesus and leaves. And then the fourth picture is blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is blind and he cries loudly in the street, pleading with Jesus to heal him. And he's, of course, not only healed, but eventually saved. Do you see the connecting themes here? You should. I think the the connecting themes are those of need and lowliness. And bold but humble faith. Again, one of them, the rich young ruler, is kind of a reverse example how not to enter the kingdom. But that shows us the problem, the thing that's standing in the way of him entering the kingdom. With the others, you see how they enter the kingdom. They enter the kingdom through their lowliness and dependence, their need. Here's what we see with the children. Luke 18, starting in verse 15. They were bringing even their babies to Jesus, so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child will not enter it at all. Well, it's pretty straightforward, but let's talk about what's happening in this passage. Parents want their children to be blessed, to be right with God, like hopefully any parent does. Most parents want their children to be blessed and and to be right with God. And these parents believe that Jesus is one who can bless their children. They believe enough of Jesus' message and who he is that they think he has a connection with heaven. And they want Jesus to bless their children. There's faith in that. It's clear they understand something of who Jesus is by this. Now, by the way, Luke emphasizes that these are infants. 
Babies is what it says in the New American Standard. It's a different Greek word than the other passages that talk about this same story, the same kind of thing of children and Jesus. There in those other passages, it's a general word, like our English word children. That can mean babies, that can mean older children. But Luke uses a specific word that means either newborns or those still breastfeeding. They're very early on in their life. But nevertheless, the disciples have a problem with all this. In fact, they're so concerned, it says, verse 15, they're rebuking the parents. They're not just sort of being politically nice and gentle, yet deflecting and saying, now's not a good time. Jesus has to get somewhere. Maybe if he's passing through again, we can have some time with the kids. They don't do that like a good PR person would for a mayor or a governor. No, they rebuke the parents for doing this. So why do they have a problem with what's going on? It doesn't say, but I think we can think of some possible reasons why the disciples might have been rebuking the parents for bringing their children to Jesus. They're not right reasons, but some reasons might be, one, that they think ministry is for adults. Ministry is not for children. Or maybe they think that Jesus is simply too important to take time for children, as as is usually the case with important people. Maybe they are concerned about this delaying the journey to Jerusalem. After all, Jesus keeps saying he has to get to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. That's the end of the road for him. Jerusalem. Maybe they're just simply honoring that and saying, let's get him to Jerusalem and not get get holed up here with a, a bunch of kids. Or maybe it's simply that children tend to be noisy and unpredictable and time-consuming. So maybe the disciples are thinking, Jesus can surely bless a lot of kids at once if he wants to. And he can bless them from far away. He can just say, bless, and all the kids are blessed. We don't have to bring them on his lap like a a Santa parade, do we? We We don't have to do that, do we? Jesus can just bless them. So maybe they think this is going to be messy. This is going to be unpredictable. This is going to be uh, an interesting rotation of kids in and out, and it's unnecessary. Well, whatever the reason for the disciples' discouragement to these parents and to their children about coming and touching Jesus and being touched by Jesus, Jesus makes it clear that they're on the wrong track. Jesus rebukes them. In fact, in Mark's passage of this, Mark 10, 14, it says there that Jesus was indignant about the disciples doing this. He's angry at the disciples because they're refusing these parents and their children. After all, Jesus has already made this issue pretty clear back in Luke 9. In Luke 9, it says there, Jesus took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. He says two things, receive children, and the kingdom is like children. You want to be great in the kingdom, be like the least of them, be like a child. They should have known, they should have seen what Jesus was getting at and why he would want the children, to come to him. In fact, this is no small theme. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three gospel accounts, they all have this kind of story. In fact, they have it more than once. Matthew has it twice, Matthew 18 and then 19. 
Mark has it once in Mark 10, and Luke has it twice. Luke has it in Luke 9, and then here in Luke 18, which means that of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, three of them record this. And of those three, two of them talk about two different occasions with Jesus and children. Jesus bringing children to him. Jesus being near children. Not just even talking about children, but bringing them to himself. So this might be something that Jesus did often. Maybe something he eventually was known for, which just added to the problem for the disciples. Boy, this is a big line forming here. A lot of children want to get blessed. But they eventually, of course, came to see that this was right and important because it's here frequently in these gospel accounts. I want us to notice three things about these stories. The first is that Jesus enjoys children. He enjoys children. That isn't the main point of the story, I know, but it seems to me to be implied that Jesus enjoys their company. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, all stress this gentle, appropriate physicality of Jesus and children. It's appropriate, so we, it's a shame we even have to mention that today. Jesus touching children, of course, makes some people wonder, what? What do you mean he touched them? We have to be so sterile and careful in our day. But it was appropriate, and yet it was gentle and intimate and personal, Luke 18, it says he touched them. Mar Matthew 19, it says he laid his hands on them. In Mark 10, it says he took them in his arms. It's the Greek word for hug. He hugged them. He embraced them. So whatever else this story tells us and implies, whatever else it illustrates for us, it shows us that Jesus didn't think he was too busy or too important for kids. He wanted them literally and physically to come to him. Now, yes, he wanted them to come to him so that he could use them as a, an illustration, as a word picture, as an object lesson in how to come to Jesus and how to receive the kingdom, how to enter into God's plan. But doesn't it seem that there's something more immediate, more affectionate, more personal. Doesn't it seem that Jesus isn't being sterile or distant here? Doesn't it seem like he could have said, oh, children, that reminds me. Yes, the kingdom is like children. He says that and then never touches kids, never brings them to himself, never says, are you kidding, disciples? Bring them to me. I want them near me. I mean, that's the way Jesus usually illustrates. He sees a tree over there, and he doesn't go to it and say, I love trees. And he goes and runs and hugs the tree. He just talks about a tree. He sees a tree over there and says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a tree. It's a small seed and then it grows. He doesn't go and touch the tree. But the kids are different. He wants to use them as an illustration, yes. But he also wants to embrace them. He also wants them near him. He didn't have to do that. But Jesus is doing two things at once. Imagine that. Jesus is doing two things at once here like he often is. He's showing us two things, teaching us two things. That he cares for kids and that eventually he'll use them as an illustration here. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop, in the 1800s, said this, 
Let us learn from these verses that the Lord Jesus cares tenderly for the souls of little children. Young as they are, they are not beneath his thought and attention. That mighty heart of his has room for the babe in its cradle as well as the king on his throne. And by the way, let me clarify this. This is not single guy naivete appreciation of kids. Like maybe you've got a 22-year-old, 23-year-old guy in your family or, your, uh, or, or in your life somehow, and he thinks he loves kids. It's the same guy who thinks that he's a parent to his dog, which doesn't count, doesn't count. But he thinks he loves kids, and you know that if he changed a diaper, he would throw up, and you know that if he had to babysit for three hours, he'd fall on a sword. You know, you know he doesn't really love kids because he hasn't done it yet. And so surely some people had to have thought, oh, sure you love kids, Jesus. You're single. <laughs> you don't have any. Let them come to you. Yeah, go ahead, have them. Okay, but Jesus knows that, that kids can sometimes be a test of patience. Jesus believes in time away from crowds and people. He believes in rest and recuperation. You see it in Luke 5 and then again in Luke 9 where he says, I, I got to get away from the crowd. I need a break. And so Jesus here isn't unsympathetic to moms who occasionally need a break from kids. Jesus knows that kids are sometimes frustrating and disobedient and dirty and sinful. I haven't thought of that list before, or have I? Jesus knows that. He knows what kids are like, but he's demonstrating here to us that kids are nevertheless precious. That Psalm 127 is true. That it's good to have a lot of them. It's good to have a lot of kids. Psalm 128, they're like olive plants around your table. What does that mean, they're olive plants around your table? Well, it's debated, but some scholars suggest that this is a word picture here to communicate energy even, strength, richness, and eventual blessing. Kids around the table, sometimes a headache and sometimes noisy. And Psalm 128 says these are olive plants that are strong and mighty and one day going to be big and ready to bloom. Proverbs 17 says grandchildren are the crown of old men. And kids have these unique lessons for us, these unique word pictures for us. And we'll come back to that in just a bit, but here's the point for now. We should watch the kids. We should study the kids. We should enjoy them because Jesus did. So laugh at them. And I said laugh at them. Yes, laugh with them, but laugh at them. Get them to laugh with you. They do funny things all the time. Cuddle them. Wrestle with them. Pretend. Make believe with them. Do tea parties with them. See that there is some biblical, holy sentiment behind Enjoy them now. They grow up so fast. For many of us, doesn't this suggest 
that maybe life needs to slow down. I mean, if the kids are going to sit on our laps, that means mom and dad have to sit sometimes. It means you got to stop. Are, are you too busy to sit and enjoy kids? Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you're a parent of a teenager or a parent of a tweener. And so you're thinking this doesn't apply to you, that it did once apply to you. But now that the baby chub has worn off and the skin isn't quite so soft and they've got those bigger sized teeth for those middle-aged years, the changing voices in the teen years, the, the B.O., The social awkwardness. Uh, Jesus loves them too. Jesus loves them too. You should. It might take more work. I mean, baby chub is, that's a precious commodity. You want to just bite it a little bit. It's so, ah, you just want to grab a little bit and not hurt them, but just bite a little bit to see. This is a loving bite. You go, ooh, baby chub and the smell of a baby. And, and then they start having bad breath when they wake up in the morning. And, and then they want you to wipe them. And that's worse than diapers, I think. But <laughs> all that says, we work to love them because Jesus loves them. He loves the children. He loves them. So moms, thank you that you are often his hands and his feet to do that in ways that not all of us can, not, not in ways that I think dads were made to exactly. I think he has put some things in you for nurturing and for gentleness and for warmth and patience with kids that generally speaking he hasn't put in dads. And, and we thank you. And, and that's true, I think, even if you're not a mom. I think that's a thank you to all you ladies because God has made you that way. He's made you to be nurturers, to be extraordinarily patient and gentle and soft and to smell good, to be pretty, to be sweet and meek and gentle. We thank you for that. We bless you for that. Let me move on to the second point here that Jesus blesses children. He enjoys children and he blesses children. You see that in, in all these passages that he touched them as a symbol of blessing them. And then he prayed over them. He prayed for them. He tells us too not to hinder them coming to him. In each passage he says, don't hinder them, slow them down, turn them away from coming to Jesus. And I'm sure the opposite is true. Not just the negative, don't hinder them, but point them to him. That's what these parents were doing. These parents were bringing their kids to Jesus and presenting them to Jesus and, and giving them to Jesus, as it were. We should do the same. We should point our kids to Jesus, bring our kids to Jesus, which means praying for them, bringing them to him in prayer. It means teaching our children about Jesus. Teaching from the word, reading the Bible together. If they're young, that probably means a, a Bible storybook. If you don't have one of those, you need to get one. They're great, and they're, they make the stories of the Bible come alive for young ears to hear. 
As they get older, you need to move away from a story Bible book, at least as the main course of their Bible diet. And you need to point them to the Bible and reading on their own. And, and maybe that means now dad of a teen. It's finally time that you, that you read your Bible. It's finally time that you can say, I read this chapter and here's how God spoke to me in it. Here's what it, it means. Here's how I understand it. And to teach that to your child and help them understand it. Or at least learn how to digest God's word on their own. Maybe a catechism is something you use. We've used those for years and they're so helpful in getting kids to memorize chunks of truth. Ask a question, give an answer. And that's the way most of us, I think, think about learning. Here's a question, what's the answer? Kids especially, they want it to to be sizable and and memorizable and and manageable. And and God sometimes is so theoretical to them and big and And if they can have these chunks about what his omnipresence means and what his covenants have been and what the Ten Commandments are, they can put these in their brain and have them there easily accessible throughout all of life. There's the ministry of the church to children. There's children's ministries here that we carefully shepherd, make sure that it's good content, and that it's, it's not just fun and games, it's not just candy. Our kids have gone through uh, whole sections of our, of our children's ministry. Our, our oldest, Autumn, came here when she was, uh, I think, in kindergarten or before. And this summer, she'll be in the youth group. An old guy, a youth group kid. I mean, that's big. And we have, we have some Sunday school teachers who've taught three of our kids Three of our kids have gone through, you know, one teacher, which means they've been faithful in that. If you teach, if you work with the ministry of children here at our church, thank you. Thank you. That is, that is not thankful work. That is thankless work. That's hard work. And some of you have done it for years. God bless you. I'm blessed as, as a dad who gets to benefit from your ministry. Thank you. Let me ask you what you could do differently to make Jesus more clear, more near, more precious, more glorious to your kids. What are you doing? What else is important? I wonder, what else is important but that? And yet somehow it so easily in my home gets, gets put on the back burner or becomes an option many nights. I wonder if you've practically given up on a stubborn kid. If so, then hear Jesus' words that he's eager for them to come to him. Don't give up. Pray. Keep pointing them to Jesus. Don't hinder them. Instead, do the opposite. Point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus and don't tire of it. Jesus is eager to receive them. And he may in due time. Let's get to this third point then. Jesus enjoys children. He blesses children. And thirdly, Jesus teaches the childlike nature of the kingdom. The kingdom is childlike in how we enter it. There's no other way, he says, to enter the kingdom than to come like a child. Look at verse 17. Luke 18, verse 17. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. There's no other way to enter the kingdom 
No matter your past, no matter your credentials, no matter if you're, I don't know, Billy Graham or whoever you think is sort of a, an all-star ministry Christian guy, there's no one who enters the kingdom any other way than becoming like a child. So what's that mean? Well, I think first and foremost, it's humility and lowliness. Remember, don't think cocky teenager. Think baby. These were infants brought to Jesus, and infants are humble and lowly, and you don't have to teach that to them. They don't ever fake their lowliness. They have nothing to bring. They come out naked, and if it wasn't for mom and dad, they would die. In fact, in first century times, the mortality rate for infants was 25%. By the age of 10, it was 50%. That means half the kids born didn't make it until 10. Now, we know kids are dependent on mom and dad today. We know kids are fragile even today. But they knew it perhaps a little more powerfully back then when half the kids didn't make it. Half the kids. They have nothing to bring. They have no work to offer. They have no accomplishments to reference. There's no bartering whatsoever. They don't say, Mom, please give me more chocolate cake and I'll sleep all the way through the night, the next four nights. <laughs> There's no bartering whatsoever. I'll give you this, you give me that. No, 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 no. They're desperate and needy. They trust in mom and dad completely. So there's expectancy there. In fact, their expectancy is so, is so real that we dads take advantage of it. They're gullible too, right? I mean, you've told them before that you used to be Batman or something stupid. And you know, like I do, that if you keep going with it, they really do believe it. Like they think dad wouldn't keep lying for like 20 minutes now, would he? Oh yeah, he would. <laughs> yep. I would. I'll tell you afterwards that I'm just kidding. Eventually, eventually. But let's have some fun with it in the meantime. Now, what's the point? The point is this, that they are believing. They are trusting. That gullibility that is kind of fun and a little recreation off the side of life is part of this, that You've earned their trust, rightfully so. They believe you because you've been faithful, because you've provided, because you've proven yourself to be good and to care and to love. They can't take care of themselves. They can't clean themselves. They can't clothe themselves. They can't feed themselves. In fact, they, babies, they, they can't control their, their limbs. I mean, they come out like Joe Cocker dancing. It just limbs just go everywhere. They, they would knock food off the table if you didn't duct tape their arms to the back of the high chair. We all do that, right? Right? I'm just kidding. I've never done it. I thought about it, but I've never done it. But here's the key. I think here's the key to understanding what Jesus is getting at. Babies receive rather than give. That's it. Babies receive rather than give. They have nothing to bring, nothing to offer. 
So Jesus says in Luke 10 that the Father had hidden these things, the, the gospel, the kingdom. He had hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and he's revealed them to infants. Now, I think he means here, spiritually speaking, I think he's using infants here as an illustration. I think he's not talking about those who are actually wise and intelligent. I think he's talking about those who think that they're wise, spiritually speaking. They think that they're intelligent, spiritually speaking. They think they have it figured out. They don't come needy. They don't come desperate. They don't come helpless. They don't come shaking and naked and afraid and hungry and vulnerable and fragile. But they come wise and intelligent, and God has not revealed his kingdom or his gospel to them. They can't get it. But infants, those who are spiritual infantiles, those who are spiritually helpless, desperate, needy, fragile, low, with nothing to bring, those with expectancy, those who are like children who so know how to receive. Children don't have to work on receiving. Us adults do, right? Oh, no, no, you're not paying for the check. Come on, come on, give it to me. No, 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 no. I don't care if I've treated five times in a row. I'm doing, I'm paying for it. You're not going to pay for it. No, no, no. Noogie, all right, turn into a fight. They're in the restaurant. Kids don't do that. They receive so well. That's the gospel, friend. That's the gospel. That's what we need. That's why Jesus said we should be like children. Now, remember Luke 18 has several snapshots of salvation, those pictures of what it means to come to Christ, to enter the kingdom. What that means is that babies are physically what the tax collector is morally. Let me say that again. Babies are physically what the tax collector is morally, desperate, needy, in trouble on his own. Babies are physically what blind Bartimaeus is socially. Socially, the blind in the first century have nothing to offer, nothing to bring to society, nothing to add to the economy. They're expected to beg. It's, it's okay that they beg. There was no alternative for them. Babies are physically what blind Bartimaeus is socially, but babies are physically not what the rich young ruler is financially. He's the opposite. Remember, he, he's self-righteous and rich, and he won't give up his riches, and he won't recognize his self-righteousness. So Jesus gives him more law. We'll look at that next week. He's the opposite of a baby. So I wonder if that's really a, a fitting word picture for you and your relationship to God. Are you spiritually needy such that you would say, I'm like a baby. I'm like a baby in need, desperate. And you're not just thinking, I'm like a baby, cute and cuddly, but you're thinking, I'm like a baby, desperate and needy, in trouble, dependent. Nothing to bring, no work, no accomplishment to offer, no bartering whatsoever. That's the gospel, friend, that only Jesus and his death upon the cross can take away our sin. There's nothing we can do to earn it. This is the only way. Jesus said it. He said this is the only way you enter the kingdom. There's not another way. This is the only way, painful as it might be for you. 
Now, I want to just take a, a little bit of time before we wrap this up to talk about what this childlike nature is not. What Jesus doesn't mean when he says you have to be like a child to enter the kingdom. Four things, what it's not. It's not saying that the children are less sinful than adults, and so we all adults need to return to a childlike state of innocence. Jesus isn't talking about degrees of sin or amount of sin here. He's talking about the way they're dependent on their moms and dads and the way adults often aren't dependent on their moms and dads. The way kids are parent-reliant and people are, adults are self-reliant. He's not telling us we need to get back to a state of innocence. It's not there. It's never been there. Secondly, he's not talking about something related to infant baptism, as some would suggest. There's nothing in this passage about infant baptism. There's nothing here, and you would expect that this is a great place for Jesus to bring it up. There's nothing referencing circumcision. These babies can come to Jesus because they've been circumcised. There's nothing about because of their parents' belief. It's simply that their kids and Jesus wants to bless them and pray over them and then use them as an example for us. Third, this passage is not a basis for bad childhood evangelism. What I mean is this. I believe children can be converted at a young age, but that isn't necessarily the same thing as immediately giving assurance to our kids because last night they asked to say this prayer and they said it, or because last night hell sounded scary for the first time, or, or hot for the first time. Or because Jesus sounds pretty nice to them in an environment where everyone is pro-Jesus. Or because big brother and big sister have done this and they want to do it too. They want to invite Jesus into their hearts. Now, they may say anything like that and it might be the real deal. It might be that God has granted a new heart and brought new life into their soul. And it may be that it's completely natural like the way well, in a Buddhist family, little kids are pro-Buddha. Or in an Islamic family, the way that kids embrace that. It may not be the miracle of the new birth. So here's how it works in our home. We want to talk about the gospel constantly. We want to point them to the gospel. We want to encourage the gospel, never discourage. Right? We, never, we want to encourage their faith and never discourage their faith. But we tell our kids openly. You know, when adults believe there's an immediate test, friends or Jesus, career or Jesus, parents or Jesus, tradition or Jesus, religion or Jesus. And for young kids, everything's pro-Jesus in a pro-Jesus Christian home. So we tell our kids that at some point, There'll be a fork in the road, and, and this faith will either evidence itself to be real or it won't. We see fruit, and we're encouraged by that, and we're watching this little plant grow up, and, and we hope that the sun of worry and riches doesn't scorch out that plant, and it proved to not be the real deal. We're hoping that this bears 30-fold or 60-fold or even 100-fold fruit so that when they choose between this or Jesus, it's not this, whatever this is, it's Jesus. And lastly, what childlike nature 
Childlike faith is not. It's not an encouragement of general thoughtlessness. Some sentimental Christianity often talks about childlike faith as something that disregards doctrine. This passage isn't talking about that. In fact, there are other places in the Bible that discourage being childlikeness, being childlike. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, but I became a man and I put away childish things. 1 Corinthians 14, don't be childlike in your thinking. Ephesians 4, we used to be childlike, now we're not. It's all over in the New Testament. So there's a sense in which we are to be childlike and another sense in which we're not to be childlike. And this passage is not encouraging childlikeness, which is uh, in ignoring of truth, that's merely relational and, and never theological. These are not what Jesus is talking about. Instead, Jesus is talking about a childlikeness of humility and lowliness with nothing to bring, no work to offer, no bragging, no accomplishments, but complete trust, even expectancy in his goodness, in his care, in his mercy. Here's one closing application. We come to Jesus as children. And that relationship for his never changes. We're his children. So what does that mean, that you're his child? Well, I mean, it means privilege, right? It means relationship. It means responsibility. If you're his child, act like it. If you're following the Father, do what the Father does. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. But doesn't it also mean trust? Doesn't it also mean dependence? I think we forget about that one. If we're his kids, trust him. You expect your kids to trust you, don't you? I mean, you're going through hard times. Your kids don't wonder whether you're going to care for them. It might get more lean at the dinner table, but they expect that dad's going to provide. There's going to be food there. They expect it. Because they know you, because you've proven yourself faithful. And you would be offended if they frequently doubted your goodness, your ability to provide, your ability to care for them, your ability to protect them, your goodness in caring for them. We do it all the time with God. We wonder whether he's still in it. We wonder whether he's still good. We wonder whether the promises still apply. We wonder whether he's going to get us through this trial. We know that our kid's skin knee will heal but somehow we think the skin knee of our soul right now in this trial is deadly. And it's the end. And that he doesn't see it. And he's not good. But he is. You're his child. Act like it. Trust him. Be free. He's in control. He's head of the home. Be free. Know that he's good. Know that he cares for you. He cares for you way more than you care for your kids. He's a better dad than you've ever been. He's a better dad than you can ever imagine. It doesn't mean there won't be pain and it isn't hard and he doesn't let us fall sometimes. But he's there in it. He's there through it all. I know one part of that application for me is that I need to go to his word. I need to trust him in my trials, and I need to go to his word in those trials. I need to see him. I need to talk with him. If he's my father, there's relationship there, and I need to hear his promises spoken afresh to me. 
I need to see that he's good over and over and over again in the pages of Scripture and in my own life. I need to be fed by my Father. He says this is where I go to get fed. He says I, 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 I'm to run into the strong tower, and his word's a tower. His word's a fortress to us. So go to his word. Know there, as you go to his word, that he's good. He's our Father.